I'm going to preach out of Romans chapter 8, and if you'd like to go to verse 27, we're going to, I'm going to read quite a chunky portion. Oh, the other thing to say is, if you're not doing anything tonight, Helen's been asked to preach at the local Anglican church up the road. She's going to be preaching on Esther. If you're not doing anything and you'd like to hear that, she'll be at London Coney at St. Mark's. I think they started about 7 o'clock. Sorry. Thank you, Gary. Coney Heath. Sorry. This one just down here. Yeah, Coney Heath. Thank you, Gary. (laughs) And uh, if you'd like to be part of that as well, you're welcome. All right, Romans chapter 8, verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know for those that love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Wow, this is such an encouraging portion, isn't it? Now I want to speak to you this morning about a very simple thing, that all things work together for good for those that are called. All things work together for good. And this chapter, the ho- chapter 8 of Romans, is really one logical argument that Paul presents to us. And if you know uh, Romans chapter 8, if you'd like to look uh, at the, to verse 1, Paul begins with this magnificent statement. There is thou therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a magnificent thing? That is the heart of the gospel. There's no punishment for you and for me. It comes, that statement comes after the whole of, of the first seven chapters of Romans. And if, if you just have a look at this, the, the headings of the first seven chapters of Romans, whatever your translation is, you'll see things like this. Paul starts by talking about the fact that um, the wrath of God is against all of mankind, that, God, that God's uh, holiness and righteousness has turned and he's, he's angry at sin in the world. And he, he, he talks in chapter 2 about God's righteous judgment, and he talks about how the law fits into all of that, and that God is faithful. And then he says, no, but there's a new righteousness that comes through Christ, faith in Christ, a new righteousness apart from the law. And his example of that is Abraham. And we've had a look at Abraham and what that means over the last while. And he talks about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He talks about the fact that the first Adam sinned and brought sin into the world, and the second Adam, Christ, came to make all things new. And he talks about all these wonderful things, and he, in chapter 7 he talks about, there's an illustration from marriage, 
And he talks about how we struggle with sin and how we can overcome sin in our lives. And then in chapter 8, he talks, begins with this amazing statement, there is now therefore no condemnation for us that are in Christ Jesus. And all of what he says in chapter 8 is a logical argument to enlarge on that first little point that he's made, that there's no condemnation for you and for me. He's saying there's no punishment. He's saying that you and I get off the hook for every bad thing that we've done. We have, a, we have this wonderful thing here. And if my, the video of my life was to be played, it would be blank. You would not see any of the sin because it's washed away by the blood of Jesus. I'm so glad that that is true. I'm not trying to live. So uh, I want to live so that uh, if the video of my life was played, you'd see some good things. That's how I want to live. <laughs> I don't want to, I'm not excusing sin. You understand what I'm saying? I want to live a holy life, but, but if my life was to be played, you wouldn't, it would be blank. All the sin would be washed away. Isn't that beautiful? That's what the gospel says. And you know what? I'm convinced that some Christians, they, they, it's such a good thing. The gospel is so amazing. They, even Christians struggle to believe it. <laughs> even Christians say, it can't be that simple. It can't be that good. It, it can't be. Surely it's, you, you, there must be there's some catch. There is no catch. That's why it's called good news. That's why it's amazing grace. That's why it is so good. It's unbelievable. People can't believe it. They say it's so simple. That's why people stumble over the gospel. All I have to do is believe in Jesus. Yes, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you are saved. It is Amazing. And Paul, in a logical way, with the most amazing mind, in chapter 8, he, he logically shows us every argument that people bring up against the gospel. He dismisses them one for the other, just like this. And so I want to show that to you this morning. It's all an enlargement of chapter 8, verse 1. And he says this. The first, if these were proofs, these are kind of, if, if he was a, a lawyer, this would be his first proof. The first proof that he has, is we find um, where he says this, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The first verses they read, verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here is Paul's first encouragement to you and to me. His first proof that we, are, we have received no condemnation. He says this, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And he says this, sometimes, you know, I'm a, I'm a reasonable prayer. I can pray if I need to pray. I can string some words together and I can pray. But what Paul is saying is, it's not about how to pray, it's about what to pray. And when you are struggling in your life, and we, when you don't know what to pray, and when you're feeling condemned and you're feeling like, God, I don't know what to do, and you're feeling a sense of weight of sin on your life, Paul says, the first proof that there's no condemnation for you is that the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. And this is how the Holy Spirit helps you. Even when you don't know what to pray, there, the Holy Spirit inside of you intercedes, and sometimes all you can do is go, God, and you cry out. And even that, Paul says, is the perfect Holy Spirit inside of you crying out to God and connecting with the perfect will of God and interceding on your behalf. And even when you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is praying inside of you with groans. There's no condemnation for you. It's beautiful. <laughs> There's this thing 
that happens as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And that's why tongues are such a gift as well. Don't you find it interesting that Paul says he prays in tongues more than anyone else? I mean, he was an apostle, he planted churches, he flowed in miracles and signs and wonders, and he says, this thing I do, more than any of you I pray in tongues. Why? Because he knew when he didn't know what to do, the best way to know what to do was to let the Holy Spirit inside of him intercede. And so he prayed in tongues. All the time. He interceded in tongues all the time so that the Holy Spirit could pray the perfect will of God. And you know what happens when you, when you, when you, when you, when you speak in tongues? You feel strengthened and edified. And I want to encourage you this week, if you're at work and you don't know what to do about a certain situation or you, you, you're struggling in your family, just pray in tongues. You know what the amazing thing about is living in a, in a cosmopolitan place? People won't even think it's strange. They'll just think you're from Croatia. <laughs> They'll just think that you're praying some foreign language. Just pray in tongues. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is just to... Uh, I met this guy called Thomas Christensen, who was also at the conference. He's part of the largest church in Copenhagen. It's a church of over a thousand people in Copenhagen. And he was just telling me how Copenhagen has changed as a city. They welcomed in 55 new people to their church a couple of weeks ago. Of those 55, four were Caucasians. In Denmark, four. Of the Caucasians, one was French, one was German. And there were two, two Danes. The rest of all those people welcomed to the church were from Africa, China, Malaysia, all over. Isn't that amazing? God is changing cities. God is doing an amazing thing. And we have to be those that our hearts are open to every nation of the world. Because God is bringing every nation to us. And even this church. We have wonderful people from all over the world. Let it continue like that. Amen. God is doing an amazing thing. Uh, what did I say? Uh, what, what was that? The gift in tongues. Yes, okay. And uh, the Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness. That's the first proof that, um, that he gives us, that there's no condemnation for us. Secondly, the second proof is this. He says that the purpose of God will never be broken in your life. The calling and the destiny that God has for you will never be broken. And he puts it in this way. He uses this phrase. He says, all things work together for good for those that are called and love Jesus. And I've said this many times. I hope that makes you secure in terms of your own life. That you have hope when things go wrong. That if you're seated here this morning and you don't know Christ, and over the period of this message you might think, what on earth are you talking about? By the end of this message, I trust that you will be saved. That you will know Jesus. Because that's the only hope that I have when things go wrong. There's a hope that I have in Christ that people that are not in Christ do not have. And this is the hope that I have in Jesus, that all things work together for good for me because I am called and I love Him. So all things in my life work together for good. And that's the assurance that we have as believers. And He uses this thing, He says, called. And I'd like to have a look at it. He says in verse 29, he explains what he means when he says we have been called. He says, For those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And to those that he called, he justified. And to those that he justified, he has also glorified. And this is another logical argument that Paul has to show that there's no condemnation for you. 
And this is a theological thing called predestination. And whenever you speak about predestination, people get all kind of nervous and say, well, it's very complicated and I don't understand it. I want to I try and make it as simple as I can this morning to explain what Paul means. And the problem is that we as believers, we try to talk about predestination looking forward. And I want to suggest to you the best way to, look, to understand predestination is to look back on your life and see what God has done for you. If you are saved this morning, if you know Jesus, then know this. Paul says that God foreknew you. What does that mean? It means that the heart of God knows everybody, but he especially knows some. His heart especially towards some. And the Bible is full of that. Especially, his heart was specially towards David. His heart was specially towards the people of Israel. I don't know, God is sovereign. He chooses some, and his heart is specially towards them. That's what it means. God foreknew you. So if you're saved this morning, I want to say this to you. God foreknew you. God, before the foundations of the, of, of the world, he had a special place in his heart for you, Joel. And for Petri. And for everyone. Special place in his heart. He foreknew you. He loved you. And it's like a five links of a chain, really. He says we are called according to the purpose of God, and that's the first link, that he, he, he foreknew us, that his heart was open to us, that he chose us. He showed his affection towards us. And that has nothing to do with your good work or your bad work. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the works of your life. It's just that God chose you, and his plan was that, he wants you to become like Jesus. That's why he set his heart towards you. And so this is, um, the second link then is this thing of predestination. And I want to suggest that because he foreknew you and he chose us, um, he predestined us. And what does that mean? That he predestined us to, to two things. He predestined us to be saved, that we might know him. But more important, well, not more importantly, but as important, secondly, he predestined us that we might become more and more like his son. That's why we've been, his heart has been towards us. That's why he's called us. That's why he's chosen us, is so that our, our, our history can be changed and we find life in him and our future can be completely different and our future is that we would become like his son. What an amazing thought. What an amazing declaration for your life. If, if you want to, in a nutshell, explain to others, someone else why you are a Christian and why God has called you, you can simply say, because he wants me to become like his son, Jesus. He is making me more and more like his son. That's why he saved me. And so he says he predestined us. That's the second link in the chain. The third link in the chain, he says, is this, is calling. And it's simply, I understand calling like this, that um, when God calls us, he simply finds a way to bring the gospel into our lives so that it can work into our hearts, and as it works into our hearts, we are saved. That's what it means to be called. And if you know Jesus this morning, you have been called by him. That's how you know. Because you can see what he's done in your life. And the fourth is justification. And uh, that's what I, the, the simplicity of the gospel. It's just as if we had never sinned. Our sins are washed away. That's what it means to be justified, to be saved, to be born again. All, the, all that language in the New Testament is saying the same thing. It means that you are saved. And you must be born again. And that means we have the righteousness of Christ given to us. And when he looks at us, 
He doesn't see our sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son. And then the fifth link is glorification. And I love the way that Paul speaks about glorification. I I think I've said this to you before in this church. I wanted to say it again. You and I are not going to be floating around on clouds one day playing harps with eternal spirits. That's not what the Bible says. You know, even I was thinking of this this week, this thing of you must find your soul mate to be happy. Have you ever heard that? You are my soul mate. Do you think that's a Christian idea? No, it's not a Christian idea. That is a Greek idea. Because the Greeks believed that your soul went on forever. And so, you better have found your soul mate that was going to live with you forever, isn't it? Whilst you were in trouble, if you didn't find your soul mate. No, no, no. Guys, I want to just release you. You can probably marry four, five, six women in your life and be happy. Ladies, you can probably do the same. Is this heresy? I'm not encouraging you to have multiple marriages. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this. We get so like freaked out. Is she the one? Is she my soulmate? Buddy, just if you love her, marry her. You can make it work. Yes? This is, this is what the Bible says. How come people happily marry if, they, if their spouses die? Because it's true what I'm saying to you. Yeah, I want to release you to marry and be happy and not rush around for the rest of your life saying, is she the one? I've known men in their 30s and 40s are still saying, is she the one? They're like so petrified to commit because no, it's got to be perfect. Man, I just say, guys, look at yourself in the mirror and stop trying to find a perfect woman because just look at yourself in the mirror first. Isn't that true? It's true. Want the perfect wife? Well, have a look at your own face and see if it's perfect. Anyway. The fifth thing that Paul says, and I love the way he says this, he says this is the fifth proof that we are never condemned. He says that we will be glorified. And in fact, he puts a future event that's going to happen, he puts it in the past tense. He says, you have been glorified. Yeah? And I start off by saying we're not eternal spirits. Well, the Bible teaches this, that you and I are going to have glorified bodies. We're going to be right, we will be raised from the dead when Jesus comes back and we'll have a glorified body and we'll live in a new heaven and a new earth. And he speaks about that, a future event, like it's already happened. Notice the language. What does he say? He says, and those who, who he has justified, he has also glorified past tense. And it's a future event that's still to happen. Why does he say that? Because he's so convinced that you can't, the process cannot be broken. He's so convinced that God, if God foreknew you and called you and loved you, he's going to keep you and that you will be glorified together with every other believer when Christ comes back. This is an amazing proof. And that's why I believe you don't lose your salvation. One of my convictions. Don't lose it. You can lose your inheritance along the way. But if you understand this, you know that God keeps you even until Jesus comes back. And then there's third major proof. The second one was, was, uh, one, that there's no condemnation. Two, that... um, um, Spirit helps us in our weakness. God's purpose cannot be broken. And here's the third thing that he says as a major proof, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Isn't that amazing? 
It's like at this point, it's like Paul is taking a breath. He's trying to convince the Roman church, and he's, he's been arguing logically. He's been kind of saying all this stuff to them. It's like he takes a breath at this point, and he says, have you got it yet, guys? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? He takes a breath. And I want to say to you this morning, have you got it yet? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? <laughs> There's no condemnation for you. The Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. The purposes of God cannot be broken in your life. And the third thing Paul says, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And here, this is where he starts to dismantle objections that people bring against the gospel. And so he, he, he does it in a logical way. For example, someone might say, what about if some powerful force rises up in the earth? What if, what if some militant force rises up and overthrows uh, things as we know it, and is that going to affect our salvation? Is, it, is that going to stop us from getting to glory? And, and Paul answers this kind of question in a very logical way. He simply says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Ticks that box, crosses that out. Any kind of objection like that, oh, well, God is not strong enough, or something's going to happen, or something's gonna, uh, we're gonna, it's going to interfere somehow with this plan for us. No, if God is for us, who can be against us? The second argument that people bring is this. Uh, I might start well, but I'm not so convinced that I'm going to finish well because I'm weak. Have you ever thought like that? Sometimes I feel a bit like that. God, this seems too hard. I, I, I sometimes feel like I'm not going to make it. How does Paul answer that question? Well, he answers it very simply this, in this way. He says, But he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why does he say that? Well, he's saying this. He's saying that God has already done the big thing for you. <laughs> what is the big thing that God has done for you and me? He's given us Jesus. That's the big thing he's done. He saved us. He's done all the hard work already. And he says, because God has done the big thing for you, God will also do the little thing. And what is the little thing that God will do for you? Every moment of every day, everything that you need to, to keep yourself secure, he will give you every little thing that you need because he's already done the big thing that we all need. And that's so encouraging. It's so liberating. He's going to supply along the way everything that you need to finish the race. And then it's, you, perhaps there are others that would say this. Might I not be condemned in the end because of my own weakness, my own sinfulness? And I, Paul answers that very clearly in verse 34. He just says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who then is there to condemn? He's just trying to get you to, uh, to see, no, don't worry about that kind of stuff. God, <laughs> who has your eternal destiny in his hands, has already said there's no condemnation for you. Who then can accuse you? That's what he's trying to say. Get the first thing in, in, into your spirit, into your heart. If God has justified you, who is there to accuse you? Who is there to condemn you? There's no one. And so we might be conscious of our sinfulness. We might be conscious of our weakness. But there's nothing that God's grace won't sustain us in. He reminds us of these simple things. And so then the last um, thing that uh, Paul 
kind of uh, dismantles. Sometimes people might say this, well, there's going to be some calamity that's going to separate me from the love of God. And Paul answers it in a logical way with a whole category of things that possibly might happen. So he says, shall tribulation, distress separate us from the love of God? Well, what is tribulation and distress? Well, accidents, calamities, trouble from war, trouble from violence, uh, when people cause us pain, heartache, jealousy, criticism, conflict, rejection, humiliation, gossip, ill health, poverty, pain, loneliness, any of those things. Can any of those things separate you from the love of Christ? Paul says, no. I'm saying to you this morning, Nothing, none of those things can separate you from the love of Jesus. Let it resonate in your heart. He says then, secondly, what about persecution? Well, if you look at church history, Christians have often been persecuted. And uh, even in the world now, there's persecution. And we, I believe more and more that we will be persecuted for some of the things that we believe. But here he says that persecution is, is also not ever going to separate us from the love of God. What about famine and nakedness? No, when we got food or we don't have a roof over our heads, Paul says, no, I'm not going to separate you from the love of God. What about danger? Danger for preaching the gospel. Peril? No, I'm not going to separate you from the love of God. What about the sword? What about violence when people kill each other? When, when, when Christians are facing uh, death by execution, in say, say in a Muslim country or whatever, is that going to separate you from the love of God? Paul says, absolutely not. All of those things never separate us from the love of God. And as the climax to what Paul is saying, are we really able to stand up to all these pressures? Are we really able to stand all these things that come against us? He confidently answers and he says this, in these things we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Do you get it, guys? (laughs) That's what he's saying. He's saying in all these things we are more than conquerors. Why? Because of all these things I've just tried to show you and explain to you. The fact that God loved you, foreknew you, called you, predestined you. God's given you the big thing that He's done in Jesus. And now the small thing that you need day by day, He'll give you that. And even when you face trials and all these things, there's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God. And in all of those things anyway, you are more than a conqueror because of Christ Jesus in you. And all the languages in the past tense, Paul's point is that God has already done all of those things, all of those things that need to be done for our total security and my total safety. You know, we might worry about our own weakness, we might worry about our own sinfulness, but the amazing thing that Paul is saying is that even your own weakness won't stop you getting to heaven. (laughs) There's no condemnation for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And he's not, he's not denying that we can fail. He's not denying that we sometimes sin. What he's saying, what he's saying, he's denying altogether is that the love of Christ can be taken away from us. That's what he's denying. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in God. And so he comes to this final persuasion. And I'll finish with this. Verse 38. For I am persuaded. (laughs) Are you persuaded? 
Are you persuaded this morning? Are you, are you convinced? Have you kind of thought about it, wrestled with it? Is it the truth of your heart? Is it the conviction of how you live? Are you fully persuaded? Paul says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, not powers, not heart, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of Christ in Jesus. Man, when that is in your heart, you can live differently. You can live joyfully. You can live through anything because you are convinced, not only in your head, but it's dropped from your head into your heart, and it compels your life it compels your life out of a joyful, happy, contented place. Because you know all of that is true. Amen? All things work together for good for those that are called. And every one of us has been called. Every one of us, God has known. Every one of, one of us, God has justified and He will also glorify. Let that be something that sinks deep into your heart this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the amazing truth of your gospel. We want to thank you, Lord, for what you've done in Christ. I thank you, Lord, that your word says all we need to do is to believe on Jesus and we are saved. Perhaps you're here this morning and, and you've never heard the gospel presented like that. You've perhaps thought that it's more complicated than that. The scripture says all you have to do to be saved, to come into relationship with God, is to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And that moment that happens, you are saved. You are born again, whatever language you want to use. And the scripture says we must be born again. And so I want to give opportunity this morning. If you don't know Jesus, if you never recognized that before, the fact that you are sitting here this morning means that God has already been working in your life. God is already drawing you. God is already wooing you. God is already saying, I've called you. Will you see that my hand has been upon your life? And so perhaps you're this, here this morning and you don't, you don't know Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him this morning. And it's a very simple thing. All you have to do is pray, Jesus, I believe that what you did for me is sufficient the Word says that I need to leave in my heart upon the cross and what you've done on the cross and confess with my mouth and I'm saved. And so if you are in that place this morning, I want you to just raise your hand so I can see you and I'm going to pray with you. If you don't know Jesus, you've never accepted Christ. Is there anyone this morning who wants to respond? Let's just pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the joy of what you did on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that it's because of the cross that we have a whole new destiny, a whole new future. And I just pray, Lord, in terms of what I've attempted to illustrate this morning, that every single one of us would live with the, with the liberty and joy and freedom that comes because we know that all things work together for good in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would increasingly change our hearts, that we might be compelled to, out of love to reach out into our communities and our friends and our families to speak of the great thing that you've done for us. 
And you are good to us in every way, Father. You are good to us in every way, Lord Jesus. And so we simply ask that these things would be sealed in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. Help that to compel us to live differently, Lord, to live joyfully, to live sacrificially. There's so much for us to enjoy, so much for us to walk into because of what you've done in our lives. And we simply say thank you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.